Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran. And in this show, I talk with composers, songwriters, producers, and scientists about the creative process of writing music. Today we'll hear from Ian Dickey, a creative and talented composer who's been commissioned to write music for ensembles like Alarm Will Sound and the New World Symphony. He's also been commissioned by me to compose this episode's intro music. First, some announcements. This show is brought to you by the generous Patreon patrons of ComposerQuest and by lynda.com. Lynda is an online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you improve your creative, technical, and business skills. For a free 10-day trial, go to lynda.com quest. And that's Lynda with a Y. Now, a moment to thank my patrons. Thanks to John Lindsay, who's composing out in New Hampshire and has an impressively large beard. You're hearing his composition Love Theme, which he says is a cheesy love theme from How I Dumped My Ex-Boyfriend's Body. Check out more of his music at soundcloud.com slash John R. Lindsay with an E. I also have another John L. patron, John Lindstrom. I'm not sure where you live, John, or what you do, but if you're listening, thank you. Ian Dickey is a master of taking small motives and developing them into full pieces of music. In this episode, he shares some of his trade secrets for developing musical ideas. Ian also teaches composition at UC Riverside, and we talk about how he and his students analyze 20th century music that seems unanalyzable. You'll find links to all the music we talk about in the show notes at composerquest.com ian. I just met you uh, a couple weeks ago at the um, Composers Forum Piano and Electronics concert. And um, they were performing your piece, Get Rich Quick. And um, that that piece was really cool. I, I just love the sound design you have going on in that. The original piece was a collaboration with a choreographer at the University of Texas when I was a student there. And at the end of the year, they had this, uh, the composers and choreographers would pair off together and they put on a show. And the choreographer I was working with, she was really brilliant because in the end, she decided to go with hiring a bunch of uh, male actors to be the dancers instead of actual dancers. And so in the end, it was a lot of smaller gestures juxtaposed with large gestures. So she had things like they would adjust their ties and, and play with their wristwatches and things like that while the music was going. But then they also had sections where they were running around the stage and throwing their shoes and just going totally nuts. Huh. Those of us who have worked with choreographers before know that I think that they're just very creative people in general. And they think about things in ways that composers, I think, have a hard time accessing in their mind, you know. So 
They just have a creative way of looking at things. I think we get bogged down sometimes. We're worried about the form and we're worried about the pitch collections that we're going to use and we're worried about the orchestration. I mean, and to be fair, we had, those are real things we have to worry about a bit. <laughs> Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's not going to be, uh, the bird won't take flight, so to speak. But I, so I brought her this idea and I gave her one chunk at a time and then, you know, they want more music and so you have to sort of, Say, well, it's not that easy just to do 30 seconds of music. You know, so it's funny. Can we have 30 more seconds here? Can we have a minute there? And I mean, that's happened to me numerous times with this sort of thing. And it's funny because they just, to them, creating more movement, not that it's intrinsically easier, but it's, um, it's a bit of a different process than it is to write a whole new, you know, 50 measures of music or whatever is required. Yeah. So anyway, I wanted to write this piece. The sort of the financial collapse was going on. And there were all these, if, I mean, I think at the time I did have a television. I remember just watching a little and just being sort of dumbfounded by all the different things that were being said or watching or listening to the radio and, and, and hearing the different reports and the different, you know, sound bites going around from different politicians and things. You had President Bush at the time urging people to go to Disneyland or something like that. It was just strange, the whole thing. <laughs> or, I mean, or maybe I'm mixing that up with one, after the 9-11 telling people to go to Disneyland, one or the other. It was a whole bunch of mixed messages. And so I've been wanting to write this piece for a while, I guess, that, that sort of addressed that idea. And I thought, what better way than to, with a fixed media piece where the sort of the speakers are facing at the audience and it's just like a normal, normal traditional media consumption thing. So the sound's coming at them, but they you don't have anything, you're not interacting with it. You know, just like, although that's changing, but traditional media, that's sort of the case. It's just coming at you. And so... I went to the public library. I took out a bunch of audiobooks. And I couldn't believe it. When I went to the library and I typed in their little search engine there, their little local search engine, I typed in Get Rich Quick because I knew that would be my title, or at least that was my working title. And I thought, oh, what happens if I just type that in? And I could not believe how many hits, how many entries came up <laughs> just at the, at the library in, in downtown Austin. I could not believe it. I was just like something like 50 hits. It was, it was incredible. And so, and they were all audiobooks, of course, I guess, maybe <laughs> on one hand, that's not a surprise. And so I took out a couple of them, or more than a couple, maybe I took out four or five. And I took them home. And these were things, you know, each one of these had multiple CDs. It was a lot of material. And I thought, all right, I'll just limit it to these. And actually, I lucked out because a lot of the voices that were on these audiobooks had, they were very musical. And so in the end, I settled on those. Th- there's generally there's just three voices in the piece, and those come from three different audiobooks. So copyright uh, be damned in this piece. I mean, it's, <laughs> I could definitely get in trouble. But uh, one of the voices is the famous person, the Susie Orman person. It's so funny to have her voice in there. She has such a musical voice. The other voices, I, I think they're just voice actors. So I went through, I listened to hours and hours of these books, and any time that they said something that kind of popped out at me as either being somewhat musical or just an interesting phrase or, I don't know, I was attracted to it for whatever reason, I would grab it, basically. I would just import the CD and cut that little part out. So when I was done, I had something like, I don't know, 60 or 70 of those little samples. And So, so it was more just the musical qualities versus what they were actually saying? Well, I think I think it was both because the next part of the process because I had all that and I thought, okay, fine, but what am I going to do with all this, you know? And it needs to be organized in some kind of way. So, I actually 
I don't know. If, I don't know why I felt compelled to do this. I actually wrote them all out by hand on index cards, and then I put them on the floor, and then from there, I was started to arrange them into different piles, and that's actually how I came up with the the uh, the pieces in eight sections. That's how I sort of realized it was going to be eight parts because of that process. It's funny. I think about that now, and it seems strange to me that I did that, but at the time, it made sense. So as I was doing that, I noticed that one of the categories was credit card debt. Debt is a part of our daily life. Millions of Americans have bad credit ratings. And then another category was, it seemed like it was just a bunch of like numbers and stock indexes and things like that. And I just like that idea of a sort of abstract, pointless sort of rattling off of those, those kind of pieces of information. $600 billion Thousands of mutual funds. 15 million. The nine steps to financial freedom. IBM, AT&T, General Motors, Esso, Eastman Kodak, Sears, General Electric, Texaco. Your name, address, date of birth, past address, home and work. And then there was a section that I thought was sort of like grandfatherly advice. Investing really is easier than most people think. And then there was a section about paying the bills. Get out of debt. Here is what you need to know. Pay those bills when it comes Get in. Get out of debt. I think the piece was made using Reason and Cubase and, well, of course, Sibelius. Maybe also Ableton Live. I don't remember. So I loaded them into a sampler and started playing around with them. That's generally I like to, I think it's a really easy way to work with material and build gestures on the fly is to just load your concrete samples into a sampler and then actually map them throughout the keyboard and just play your samples, play the play these things. What do they do? Have some of them, perhaps you can set up the sampler so that you have a certain ratio of reversed file playback or you know the different kinds of random functions that some of these things offer. And so that's some of the material was made that way in the piece. Anyway, I realized that I couldn't just do it with voices, so I decided, well, the piano is a very particular sound, and coins and things are also particular sounds, and they seem to go together, actually. I think it has something to do with the upper partials. I'm not quite sure, but especially the higher piano really mixed well with the coin-dropping sounds. Investing really is working with text and music i think you have to you really have to think about the relationship you're building with those two elements and or you can't ignore that there is a relationship that's going to be formed and so i sort of strategically figured out how i could get the piece to to build this continuum so to speak one that was influenced very much so by stockhausen but this idea that the text and the piano would be just unrelated objects in the beginning meaning that they don't play together even. They're just sort of overlaid on top of each other. And as we go along, the prosody of the speech then informs the rhythm of the piano part. And then there's a section where it's the credit card part where it's the in lockstep rhythm. Credit card, credit card, charge card. Credit card, credit card, debt has a time and place. Credit card, credit card, credit. Credit card, charge card, debt has a time and place. And then the final part of the piece is where I kind of go into the, uh, which is normally the starting point for like a, sort of a Steve Reich or a Scott Johnson piece, but, you know, where the pitch and the 
melody are totally mapped together. Pay those bills when it comes in. Pay those bills when it comes in. Pay those bills when it pay those bills when it comes in. Pay those bills when it comes in. The thing that struck me listening to it was just thinking about how the all the sound effects you have, even though they they're all like related to coins, they have really different connotations as the piece progresses it seems like like at one point it's a jackpot mm-hmm. sound at the beginning it's more like just a few coins so yeah i don't know if you were thinking that way at all like of the meaning outside of just how they sounded but i think well the density of the coins and things like that those were probably things more informed by just musical, normal, old composition stuff. I don't know if I was thinking any other upper-level thing oh, with those. Okay. And then a lot of the um, coin things are actually used as drum machines. They keep the, the beat going. So there's a lot of cyclical kind of coin loops where they sort of crash smashing down, but they're doing so in, in, a, in a way that implies like a, you know, there's an ictus to it, and then the pianist kind of goes with that. The world's second largest mutual fund company. Marriage, divorce, parenthood. Financial transactions multiplied in our lives. Multiplied, 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 in our lives. The dot-com bubble. FICO.com. What would you say is the your favorite piece that you've written? Some composers say it's the last piece they wrote. I don't know if I always could say that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited. I'll tell you one thing. I'm very excited. Shortly, I think sometime in the next few months, I will be able to post online the piece I wrote for Alarmable Sound last summer. It's a little bit of a new direction for my work because it uses a kind of um, data sonification element. But it's actually a purely acoustic piece. But some of it, statistics play a part in how I constructed certain elements of the piece. And I did different things in it that I was happy with. Although my wife doesn't like it, so I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But I like it so far. You know, some pieces that I don't, I'm not terribly fond of them are the ones that seems like uh, people like to program. So Hmm. what do you think the, the difference is? Like, what is it that makes people want to program them? Well, because there are probably elements of those pieces that I'm not thinking about as I don't perceive as maybe being attractive and, and that they are, or, some, or I don't know. Or that they're for a certain instrumentation or instrument that is more interested in playing new music, you know, like something like saxophone, of course. Classical sax, saxophonists don't really have very much rep out there, and so they're pretty excited to play new music. Mm-hmm. It's not that I don't like the pieces I've done for that, but I, I don't know if it's my best work. It's hard, you know, it's hard for me to say. And I think that sometimes on my end, because I'm the one creating these things, the ones that I may be most proud of or think are the best for some reason or another, or because I was the one putting it together and I think about all the things I thought about maybe or the logic that I put into it. But at the end of the day, nobody cares. <laughs> you know, It's got to be a good piece of music. And then there are times when those two line up where you really came up with a good plan and executed it in a systematic way that makes you feel satisfied as a composer and at the same time delivers a really 
delivers an experience for an audience. And I, I so I, I don't want to use the word good or bad experience because I think the key is to deliver a, some kind of experience. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't think all pieces are meant to be enjoyable to listen to. So, and most audiences, I think, get on board with that too. I think it's just that you got to take them with you. And if they felt like they really went with you on it, then I, I don't think it's a matter of, oh, it was too too this or that for me. It was too loud or it was too dissonant or whatever. It doesn't matter. As long as they're with you and you took them through your logic, what you're trying to express, be it programmatic or maybe it's some kind of abstract feeling you're trying to provide, then I think that's what's really important. So I don't, I don't really know. I mean, yeah. I have a piece like one of my first... I guess it was my first chamber orchestra piece. I have quite a few of these pieces now. But it was one I did at Texas back in 2009, I think. It's called The Lunatic Fringe. And for me, that's a piece I'm extremely proud of. But it's only been played once. Mm-hmm. Partly probably because it features samples of Bush, <laughs> George <laughs> Bush. And I think at this point, we just, as a country, are trying to distance ourselves from the last decade. And so I don't think people are interested in hearing his voice at this point. I mean, that could be part of it. I mean, the other part of it is, of course, the chamber orchestra pieces are not an easy thing to get performances for, I mean, in general. Although there's a strong network of universities that have new music ensembles that can play this stuff. So, I don't know. But for me, that's a piece I'm very proud of because I really planned it. I really thought about all the details and I was happy with the execution. I felt like it was an experience at the end. And it's, you know, it's a longer piece. It's 15 minutes. When you're writing a... 15 minute piece like that how do you um how do you structure that and think of it as a cohesive whole i mean all of my music yeah all of it i guess <laughs> i was gonna say is that true yes it is true all of it is programmatic in some way i really have a hard time being creative without there being some kind of programmatic aspect to what i'm doing so I would be, I think, a very bad abstract composer, although that's some of my favorite music, but it's very hard for me to do. So I think for me, the first thing is I have to know what the program is and then figure out how the form should reinforce that idea. And I think what I mean by idea doesn't need to be that I'm trying to force a specific concept down an audience's throat. I think, I think some of my earlier quote-unquote programmatic music was like that, where I had something like, this motive represents a machine gun, and then this motive represents someone screaming, and this motive, you know, and that's just, it's too much. It's too, well, for one, it's too literal, I think. And two, it's asking too much of an audience to keep track of these these different little motives and things that are representing certain, you know, it's a very 19th century kind of programmatic idea, which I have found a lot of fault in over the years and sort of have avoided since then. In fact, if I have a very specific programmatic piece, it's, it, for me, it needs to have some kind of text. Or if it's mm. not, a, I mean, and if it's not being sung, I mean, like text like in Get Rich Quick, it needs to have samples of people talking. But anyway, so in the case of like this 15 minute chamber orchestra piece, I need to narrow down the possibilities. That's always the biggest problem for all of us when we look at that blank page and anything could be on there. And so that piece, the whole 15 minutes is based around a little five note motive which is actually a musical monogram of uh, George Bush, his name. G. Bush is the monogram. <laughs> and in my creative mapping skills, it ends up being G, B-flat, C, E-flat, B-natural. So 
So it's a little mixture of German music notation and I don't know Latin. I don't know. I was thinking all kinds of. I, it doesn't matter really. In the end, it's actually a motive that I I, <laughs> I I would have used. I think anyway, it's something. No, I don't, I'm not saying I would have come up with it by myself, but it is one that it's not unlike something I would have written in some ways. A lot of my work, especially in the last five years, has some sort of fixed element that's not going to change that I did not write. And then I'm going to weave my work around it. Or I'm going to make some changes to it, but I'm going to leave certain parameters the same. So I've done that quite a bit where I take pre-existing folk song or a pre-existing pop song that I'm re quote unquote remixing or something like that. I really I do better under those kind of circumstances. So in that sense, I created my own pre-existing material by just assigning this motive based on his name and using that throughout the piece. Because you can use that, of course, horizontally, vertically, and it's five notes. And so why maybe the piece is in five sections. Each section is the key in a key center based on the that note. So, you know, the first section's in G sort of, and the next section's kind of in B flat, the middle parts in C, so on and so forth. And you know, and then it, so okay, I knew then this five sections. Well, what's the classic five section form? Would be a mirror form A B C B A. So that told me that I would do that. And you know, so then once you start thinking that way and you start writing that, I always just I have a, I have staff paper, but I hardly ever actually write notes on it. I'm just writing ideas and and maybe occasionally I'm writing a chord or whatever. My pre planning sketches are just a total mess. I think only I can decode them. Um, yeah. But that's what I sort of, for a large piece like that, I wouldn't embark on it ever without having some kind of thing like that, some sort of pre-plan that is going to be a guide as I work through the piece. So once I had a satisfying level of detail in that pre-plan, then it was just a matter of, I mean, not to say it was easy, but to actually write the music. And that comes with its own challenges, but at least I felt like I knew where I was at all times when I was writing the Hmm. piece. That's the tough part for me is... If I were to say, like, oh, I want this section to be in this key, then this next section will be in this key, this key, and this key, it's kind of hard for me to figure out how to get from one place to another, not knowing what the melody or chord progression is going to be. But, yeah, I guess I wonder how you work in that way. Well... If I'm broadly defining the key center, it doesn't mean that the whole section needs to be in that key center. But if if it's a shorter section, it might mean that it is totally in that key center. But um, you know, in the case of that piece, I was working again with the kind of like Get Rich Quick. I had these samples of text with Bush's voice and NPR news broadcasts and things like that. I again was sort of working with those, I may have even loaded them again into a sampler of some kind, and I started sort of playing along with them in the key that I predefined that I thought I was going to work in. If you've retired, you don't have anything to worry about. Third time I've said that. I'll probably say it three more times, see? In my line of work, you got to keep repeating things over and over and over again for the truth to sink in.
probably say it three more times. See, in my line of work, you got to keep repeating things for the truth to sink in. You know, a composition. There's always, well, unless you're really just writing a purely scientifically created piece with a magic square or something like that, um, it involves some kind of improvisation. And it may be that I've already have some of these. You know how you always have a little in your back pocket. You may have a couple of licks or riffs that you think might be useful at some point. So it's your chance to sort of lay them out on the table, or maybe you've saved them as Sibelius files or whatever, right? Um, you know, you can always transpose them to fit into your idea. That's the other thing. So I may have some pre-existing passages and things like that. And then another thing is just then it, the, having the form like that, it sort of shows me how I need to have contrasting tempi, perhaps, or contrasting dynamics, things like that. I think that also informs then how you write or the type of material you're going to write. You know, so I knew that the first part would probably be kind of a slow introduction that sort of built built, 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 kept climbing until I reached this next section, which was going to be this really frenetic, crazy thing, because we've had maybe three minutes of slow, mysterious kind of music. Now it's time for a a quick two minutes of crazy stuff. And I mean, in that second section, which is a B-flat in that piece, it's a collage of all of Bush's favorite pop songs. So it's just all these melodies coming, crashing on top of each other. So when I say it's in B-flat, it's only because there's a... um, 12-bar blues progression going on underneath in B-flat. The rest of it is, is very uh, bi and tritonal. <laughs> Climax of that, that B flex, where we're going to the C part, which is the also C, it's in C and it's the C part of the form, is the first time we hear his voice. And this is the largest part of the piece where we get a lot of, so it's a, it really is a lot of vamps because then the uh, electronic part is, is sort of, I want the focus of attention to be on the text. And so I knew musically not to try to do too many things in that section comparatively. So that's more of a kind of a lot of vamping on a C pedal, actually, in, in ways. I mean, so that, doing that piece made me realize that I don't always have to have the most interesting music going on all the time. It's about thinking about the larger picture. I decided to act and act boldly. fundamental challenge of our time, we can lead toward a world that is more secure and more prosperous and more hopeful. You were mentioning that you sometimes reuse um, folk songs in Oh Bury Me Not, the cowboy song. That Mm -hmm. one, the piece you did with that, I thought was really cool. Oh, baby, now. Oh, baby, now. 
that started with that sample. I've really been interested in this archive, and I plan on writing other works, actually, that come from this John Lomax archive. Um, the trip he took in 1939 across the southern states, and it's all, you know, it's just on this Library of Congress website. It's really nice. It's there. And, in fact, I did get permission to use that because I wrote the Con- Library of Congress saying, you know, what's the story with these? And, and they said, you know, there really isn't any copyright on them. Um, we just ask that you just think about what you're doing and respect the, you know, what you're doing. And, and so the way I think of that piece, at least, you know, folk music is very interesting compared to commercial pop music or whatever. I mean, folk music, you don't have a definitive version of a song. And if you did, I think it wouldn't be folk music anymore. It would be something more commercial. And that's the beauty of folk music is that it's always changing. I mean, that song in particular started in, in the 1830s as a sea shanty. And it was something like, oh, bury me not out at sea. And then it changed into, you know, when it got to this country, it got changed around. And then as, as we sort of did our manifest destiny thing and went out westward, I guess this song became somehow a, a trope that went along with that. But... Um, and yes, it's a very popular song. It's been done many, many times. But that's what I like about it. It's that you could hear versions of it and you may not even be able to distinguish one from the other. And in fact, on the Lomax archive itself, there are two versions of this song. And they are completely different. Mm-hmm. I mean, the one that I chose in the end was the one where I think most people would recognize it. But then the other version, I'm not sure of why it's so different. Actually, it's really interesting to me. Um, and I'd like to maybe use it for something else, write another piece with the same thing, because yeah. I really do like the like the tune. So that piece uh, was a, that's the fixed element, right, that I'm not going to change, and then writing the piece around it. And so I, when I was choosing the sounds to, to, to reflect this recording, I mean, the recording is scratchy sounding, and there's imprecision in the singing, of course, um, which is also maybe in some ways one of the hallmarks of folk music performance is this sort of notes in between the notes being a feature. And so I wanted that to be, all of that to find its way into my version of the piece, my continuation of, of the tradition. So the percussionist has a radio that's tuned to static, so I'm you know trying to evoke the static of the recording. And there, But there are a lot of things, again, that I did that you'll never hear, and you wouldn't care anyway, <laughs> that are in there. So there's sections where the, the bass line that's going over, let's say, a whole two minutes of music, or I don't know what it is, a minute and a half of music. The bass line is just an extremely augmented version of the tune, for instance. You would never know. <laughs> but it's there, and it why? Just because it narrowed down the possibilities for me. I wrote, I liked doing that because then I still got, I wrote some stuff on top of that, that that worked, and and I like the idea that I didn't have to change anything. The very end of the piece, the tune is happening in three levels and three different transpositions at three different speeds. There's like the ensemble singing. There's actually a, a very augmented version going on with Glockenspiel, which is so augmented that you wouldn't know at all hmm. <laughs> that it's the tune. And then there, it's also happening in the trombone. And uh, yeah, and they're in these different keys where when you stack the three keys on top of each other, you actually get this sort of interesting synthetic scale that has, uh, I can't quite remember the, 
details. I'd have to look again, but it, there's a you know it has like A flat and A natural depending on where you are in the scale and things like that. It's kind of hmm. so it created it, it. What it did and essentially was allowed me to have a very diatonic sounding passage of music, and I wanted to do this sort of Stravinsky time stretched out forever thing, like the end of Symphony of Psalms or something like that. Hmm. So I have this drone that's going the entire time in the electronics at the end, the B flat drone, and then on top of that is this presentation of the folk tune in in the three opposing keys and three durations. Another piece um, that I liked of yours was outside the easy sway of either or. Mm. And in the notes, you mentioned that you're thinking of it as like the listeners entering a world that had already started and will keep on going. Now, I, I like that description of it. I thought that was yeah, that, that was cool. That was another piece that was with a choreographer. And I don't know how it came up, but she was really wanted to do something inspired by the the painting, uh, The Swing by Fragonard. And it's, it evokes a certain feeling, and she wanted to capture that feeling, I guess. There's something about the expression on the, on the girl who's seated, who's swinging on the swing. But the sound world of that piece, if I can recall, God, that's a really old piece, is, uh, consists of a lot of human sounds. There's a sound of breath, of exhaling and inhaling, and there's sounds of uh, different sounds you can make with your mouth and things like that. While there's this, at the same time, really plaintive melodic strand that's flowing through, which is, I can't remember, electric guitars and violin harmonics and things like that. Again, <laughs> giving all my secrets away here. I think that was a again just putting things into a sampler and making gestures out of my own keyboard playing. Hmm. That's a good trick. I like that. Might have to use that. <laughs> I mean, I figure I'm not the only one doing that, so I figure I don't mind saying that. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people do that. Yeah, that seems like such a better solution than just copying and pasting in samples wherever you. On the timeline physically. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are limitations to what my method there. I mean, and sometimes it really is best to do the other way around. Mm-hmm. I mean, the funny thing is, is that all the pieces we've talked about have this sort of fixed media thing, but actually a lot of my work now is all interactive. So for me, that forget rich quick, that's one of my few fi- what we call fixed media, you know, and instrument pieces. It's funny because it's not to say I wouldn't do it again. It's just my interest has really gone with taking live sound and doing things with it and working in the Maximus P environment. I've spent many years now really focusing on that program. And so it better last. (laughs) It better be around. Yeah. I'm going to be quite upset if it doesn't work 20 years from now. Yeah. Spend a lot of time on it. (laughs) I worry about that, you know, preservation of these things. That's why it's very little risk to do fixed media in that sense, because I'm pretty sure we're going to be able to play WAV files in the future. 
Yeah. When you're putting together a Max MSP patch to work with the live ensemble, you're having that Max MSP patch listen to the players in some way and then do something based on how they're playing. I, is that how sometimes, you're doing it sometimes? Sometimes. Uh, one example piece for percussion and electronics that I have called 808, which is a homage to the Roland TR-808 machine from the, I think it was released initially in 1980. That piece takes live, grabs little live snippets of sound from the percussion and then is actually sequencing it in real time uh, like a drum machine that instead of triggering samples that are just hardwired into some kind of memory board, it's actually taking live sound and sequencing it on the fly. So the way that piece works is it's a combination of the player using a MIDI pedal to trigger some events, meaning to start doing this or stop doing that or whatever, move from one section to the next. But it also has, the microphone is, of course, being used to make the recordings, but it also is, like you said, the program is uh, monitoring the amplitude throughout the work. And when a certain threshold has been crossed, meaning that it gets to a certain loudness, then something will happen in the electronic part. It might be that it goes from one part of the drums step sequencer sequence to another pattern in the sequence, for instance. So sort of challenge the idea of a step sequencer we think of always as something that's just creating you know some kind of rhythm that we can tap our foot to all the time. But it's, I had this fascination, and I'm still building these things and perfecting them in Max because I don't know why. <laughs> I'm not really sure. But I love this idea of having a step sequencer where I can have all of the different layers going at different rates. So maybe one of them's going in eighth notes, the other's going in dotted sixteenths, the other one's going in whatever quarter note triplets that stay synchronized that could also be different numbers of steps and so on and so forth but they're all running off the same clock and so it's essentially it's a, a you know it's a device then that could build any rhythm you could think of that's cool yeah i was watching your perform your performance of that and trying to figure out how that was working but it was mm. a cool cool effect seeing that live (laughs) yeah i think that's the amplitude tracking is the magic (laughs) yeah i was trying to figure out if it was like it knew which drum you were hitting Um, no but i tried to keep it modest the the so the piece was a consortium commission and so i really thought well i would do this even if it was just a solo commission um i should make it so that it's really accessible for a performer to put together not a hard thing to do Theoretically, right? So it only requires one microphone and some way of having a MIDI pedal getting into a computer. Of course, there are a variety of ways that can happen. And that's it. And the audio interface to get the microphone audio into the computer. Out of the eight people in that consortium, surprisingly, actually, to my knowledge, only two of those people have played the pieces that were in the consortium. I mean, since then, it's been played by a lot of people outside of the consortium because this was years ago. But it was surprising to me. And I think in the end, it's because they're just... I think we're not quite where I thought we were as far as people's comf- how comfortable they feel using some of this kind of technology. And that was the first piece I did in Max, 
And I spent an entire summer programming that thing. I learned a lot. But now when I look back at it, I think, oh my God, I could do this so much better now. (laughs) (laughs) There's a part of me that would love to redo it because the piece is played enough where I feel like it would be worth it to make it more stable and maybe reduce the number of phone calls I get 20 minutes before performance and it's not working. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, though, a lot of times I think it's hardly, sometimes I'll admit it could be something in my software, maybe. And if it is, usually then I will fix it and send an updated patch to somebody. That happens, sure. I mean, I'm not perfect. But a lot of times it's something to do with some hardware thing. I always tell people to start the computer again. <laughs> and you wouldn't believe how I'm, it's almost a 100% rate of success that that fixes whatever the issue is. It's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Time to break in with a little promo for lynda.com. Since Ian and I were talking about incorporating live electronics and performances, I thought I'd share a very cool Linda course called On Stage with St. Vincent. In this course, the keyboard and electronics whiz Daniel Menceris pulls back the curtain and shows everything that goes into programming a St. Vincent live show. I've used Ableton Live for some electronic performances, but it's always a fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants experience. So it's fascinating for me to see how a pro uses the software. In part of the course, we see how Daniel uses his laptop to interact with St. Vincent's drummer, since his real drum set actually triggers MIDI, too. Kind of like Ian Dickey's piece 808 that we were talking about. Here's Daniel's explanation of the setup. Matt and I worked together uh, to create essentially a custom drum set for each song. And some of these elements can even change in the middle of a song very easily. So when he hits this snare, uh, this trigger can be active or not active in various sections of the song, uh, and therefore, uh, the house can get either a clean snare or a snare blended with the trigger. Also, the snare sample or whatever sample uh, goes along with the snare uh, can be changed on the fly. Uh, so, incredible flexibility. If you're interested in more videos and courses like this one, try out Linda Free for 10 days at lynda.com quest. And that's L-Y-N-D-A. Now back to my talk with Ian Dickey. So you're teaching digital composition courses right now? Is yes, that- at, at UC Riverside. So I'm assistant professor there, and I'm teaching all composition type of courses. I mean, right now, actually, I'm teaching counterpoint. I'm also teaching an electronic music seminar for graduate students where we are. I'm trying to simulate some of the great experience I had that I mentioned at the top of our session here, the Get Rich Quick I have them paired up with uh, choreographers, and they're going to put on a show at the end of the quarter. Cool. And I've taught um, sort of a post-1945 analysis class for undergrads because I feel that they get the short end of the stick when it comes to that. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, then there was Boulez, Stockhausen, and Steve Reich, and that's the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and, they do th- and they do that all in the last week or something. You know, it's huh. just yeah. kind of crazy. Maybe it's that people are just not sure how you analyze those kind of pieces. I don't know. What, yeah, how do you approach analyzing I think, those? Yeah, I think that that's part of the problem is that we like to teach things that are teachable. <laughs> I mean, of course, they should have some pedagogical function, but we also tend to do things that are easy to teach. I mean, I think that's why we spend so much time, proportionally, I mean, teaching 12-tone stuff because it's easy to teach that in a way. It's easy to see how it works. It's easy to then tell 
students to go on a little treasure hunt and find the row and find the retrograde inversion, do things like that. Good, you found all those things, done. You get it. Mission accomplished. You know, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's harder to to look at uh, Morton Feldman's projections, one, for cello. You know, it's hard to, it's a graphic score. How do we analyze that? What are the things we should think about? So the way that I teach that class is that I'm not looking, I really don't like this right or wrong answer binary thing. So I really try to get outside of that, encourage the students just to, to what do they see? You know, what are, what's going on in this piece? And when we talk about it that way in the class. And then I, you know, I will show them what I've thought or how I looked at it, but I, I want them to feel like contributors to the class, not as a sort of teacher is master thing, you know, and I have all the right ideas and you're just here to listen to my great ideas. So, you know, in mm-hmm. that particular piece, we looked at the amount of silence versus the amount of sound, which I actually think is one way to get something out of that piece as far when you're making an analysis of it, because otherwise I'm not quite sure how you make Besides learning how to read the graphical score, but that's not analysis. That's just, you know, that's just the first part. Mm-hmm. So the, the whole point of the class is to go over some of these works, but really in the kind of detail that doesn't normally happen in the university. Yeah. When you're listening to a piece that's not just straightforward tonal, what kind of things do you listen for? Um do you mean how do I kind of demarcate sections to think of a form as like a large scale form or or yeah to, well, I think that composers can articulate form other than the sort of classical relationship of closely or far off related keys, you know, going back to the twelve tone stuff, the one way that Composers in that style articulate a cadence is through a buildup of rhythm, which actually is also true in a lot of classical works. I mean, if you look at the, uh, let's say we're talking about phrases, different kinds of phrases, a sentence will typically start with an idea, the idea is repeated, and the idea is very short, it's only a two-measure idea, then it's repeated. Then we fragment that idea. So let's say it's a total of eight measures. The first four measures, we've heard some idea twice. The second four measures, we get a fragmenting of that idea and a buildup of surface rhythm. And then, actually, we've liquidated whatever is characteristic about the basic idea that we heard. You know, something like, ba 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 bum ba 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 bum That's very characteristic. That defines that tune. But as we go along, we start to liquidate the characteristic elements, and at the end, we're left with a conventional... Cadence, so conventional in its harmonic structure and perhaps even conventional in its scalar skipping around. And I'd argue that there are post-tonal works that also operate under that principle that, that uh, liquidate maybe certain features as it goes along and also uses rhythm as a sort of as a punctuation to the end of something. I mean, a lot of works end with a low piano thump, right? <laughs> <laughs> tonal or not tonal. It's a one way to really signify this is over. <laughs> so that's one way I'd say maybe in a class like that that I just described, maybe that we think about that type of thing. Another is that maybe there's just certain parameters that our attention it should be drawn to and not so much the harmony. Like how do you listen to Stockhausen's Gesang der Junglinge? You know, I mean, it does have a pileup of frequencies that make 
chords, but it's not to be analyzed really in that way. We need to analyze it through lots of lots of other ways. I mean, the one way and kind of cycling back to that get rich quick that was really influential for me was this idea of the continuum between pitch and noise that's set up in that piece so that there's a beautiful section where the boy soprano says fire and ice and when he says ice of course ice has that so we have this wonderful sound which then gets taken up by white noise in in the electronic part and it's so seamless it's just amazing that he was able to develop this continuum so precisely using the equipment that he had available to him in the mid 50s it's really to me still mind blowing i mean spoiler alert it's probably i think the greatest piece of electronic music um hmm. period in many ways and it's funny because it was one of the first <laughs> so i think uh the whole thing of the 20th century the trajectory of it was the dissolution of traditional tonal relationships and other parameters become more important to look at the articulation the duration dynamics for instance things like that texture yeah you know think about like the things that happened in the studios in the 50s were then found their way so the stuff that was going on electronically made a way into acoustic music i mean look no further than look at these atmospheres or even stockhausen's Gruppen or thing you know these sort of dense sound mass compositions. I think the big influence from those pieces comes from the studio. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on what the future of music, like what direction things are going in, or is it just continually like splintering off into tons of little niches of styles and there are definitely lots of little niches. I mean there's just lots I mean we could even go through all of them. There's a lot of them. And there be one because there are just lots of generations of composers who are active at once. Maybe this point in time right now has been the most we've ever seen because people are living longer, of course, thankfully. And we have great composers who are living longer lives and producing work. It doesn't mean that they change with the times all the time, and it doesn't mean they should. I was that study just came out the other day saying that you don't you stop listening to new music after the age of thirty three, <laughs> which is kind of a depressing, depressing <laughs> oh, no. idea. I think composers are maybe a little less likely to fall into that category, but it's true though. I think by the time you're a certain age, you kind of have developed your your mo and you kind of have your things you want to do. Um, but I like the kind of composers that change over time and develop, you know, and expand on the things that they've started. I mean, all due respect to people like Philip Glass. Or Steve Reich, but you know, and I can understand the market pressures and forces behind that because it's nice to make a lot of money writing music. <laughs> um, but you know, Philip Glass, once he found his thing, it didn't really change all that much. And it's a wonderful thing that he found, very unique, and people like it, and it's great. But I like the composers, and myself, I'd like to be a composer who who has a a, a wide palette of different kinds of music that I will write that still fits somehow under my my voice, whatever that is, right? I think the idea of voice and masterpiece, all this stuff has really kind of become secondary now. People are just writing music for the occasion sometimes, or they're writing, you know, more and more we're seeing people writing based on things that are going on in their lives now. So we have people writing operas about, you know, the Nico Muley opera, Two Boys, it's about one boy and the other who met on an online chat forum thing. So, I mean, that's becoming more typical, right, to have these works that are being inspired by contemporary culture. 
and, and so I think, I mean, I do think that's the role of a composer. I know that not everyone would agree, but I think that in some way we should be, our work should reflect the society that we live in. And so that fits nicely into my package of writing programmatic music, yeah. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but where we're going, I don't know. I mean, there's people, it seems like post-minimalism is turned in, it's still going. <laughs> I've noticed that it's become, I've seen a lot of composers who are interested in the sort of uh, spectral music of French spectral music, but are maybe using some of those techniques in a sort of post-minimal context so that perhaps there's still a regular pulse going through and there's repetition, but then there's a lot of extended techniques being used in the actual instruments. And then there are, you know, tonality of course is really made a huge comeback. <laughs> um, there's there's no danger in that, I think, going away. I mean, it's one thing that really has fallen to the wayside, of course, is the sort of serial composition and that type of thing. Um, but that's been the case probably for a long time, mm. since the 70s at least. Hmm. Yeah, It's just, you know, university environments are sometimes the slowest to change <laughs> in that sense. So you still probably do have a few universities out there with composers writing that kind of music, but I, I think that's kind of, yeah. yeah. It's a vestige of another time. Have you ever gotten pushback from writing a piece that's fairly tonal? Because I I feel like there's still like in the art music world, like mm. maybe some people who are anti anything that sounds too much like regular tonal music, yep. I guess. I think I've actually had the opposite problem. I've gotten pushback for writing something that was too dissonant for this oh, person. Okay. Yeah. I won't name names here. It was a very the worst teacher I've ever had, actually. I was going through a, a very strong uh, Morton Feldman sort of phase, and I was wanting to write music like that. And Of course, now I realize there's no imitating that. I think it's really a singular style that only one person could do. Yeah, and I brought in a lot of stuff, and I just he, he couldn't stand it. You know, it just because it, I was doing you know a lot of these sort of densely stacked chords and things like that, and he just didn't like that there wasn't a some kind of traditional progression to it at all. Hmm. That's my one experience with that. <laughs> I think the what you've asked though, I don't know if I had that issue. I mean, my education, my first part of my education was in the conservatory, and I learned a lot, a lot of things there. Um, really important things that I don't think I would have learned if I'd gone to a, a larger university. So I'm very glad that I had that chapter of my life so early to get all that sort of nuts and bolts. Uh, at the same time, music there sort of ended at 1945. We really didn't look, aside from one faculty member that we had, we didn't really look at pieces after that. So I went into my master's really not knowing anything, and then that's where all that all changed. And master's is a funny time for a composer, I think. It's not very long. I felt very lost. I didn't know what I was doing exactly. I'd gone through this undergrad thing, and I wrote a lot of music during that time, but it was very uh, derivative music, which for me, that's what I needed to do. That's how I learned, was to copy other pieces and just write something like that. There are people out there who are just incredibly creative and don't need to go through that phase, but I absolutely did. And... So the master's is kind of a soul-searching time, and then you know your doctorate is hopefully a time where <laughs> there's some reconciliation and you figure out what it is that you're interested in, and you go from there. Um, so I've studied with a lot of people, but I don't I don't think I've had that issue. I think most of the composers I've studied with write essentially tonal music, and I consider myself a tonal composer. But for me, it's a 
I don't mean it as super literally, but I think that most of my music, if you stop, if you're listening to a piece of mine and you stop it at any point, you probably would have in your ear, if someone asked you what's the tonic here, you would probably sing something. I don't think I have that many passages where it's questionable. <laughs> but it also just depends on your degree of the way you hear things. I mean, that's hard for me to gauge. I think everybody hears differently, and that's the joy of music making. Mm-hmm. Um, your piece, Grand Central Station, uh, I really liked. And the third movement of that, especially, and I thought it was cool that you brought in the song at the end. song what you base the rest of the movement on like chord wise okay that's a cool yeah that's a cool you're starting to understand how i work now (laughs) (laughs) it's not very complex i guess the way i do this um once i have this idea i kind of use it over and over again so that piece yeah uh, because of the timing that song is from 1913 when grand central opened and it was the most popular song. It's called the Last Night Was the End of the World. And it spent like 20 weeks at the number one spot or something like that. It was very, very popular. And so I thought, well, this is fitting to use because this would have been a song that people entering the station would probably have known. Maybe they would have had it in their head. Who knows? And so I thought that I would do a sort of deconstruction of that song as the basis yeah, of that movement. So the part of the song that is being used to generate material in that third movement is the chorus and I took the first I think it's seven notes of the chorus So I actually took the recording, time-stretched it so that it's probably kind of hard to even hear what the words are. Um, and though that is doubled by different members of the chamber orchestra. It's played actually on a keyboard by the pianist in the group. I just mapped the samples to each key, and so they play along with the ensemble. So Because I didn't want to write this piece to, with a click track. I know that most conductors uh, are not into that, and I wouldn't be either. I can totally understand why that's not a fun experience. So I wanted to write, how can I do something with this kind of interactivity without you know, having to use a click track? And that was just to actually make a sampler in Maximus P, and then that sampler is loaded with each syllable or each, each different note of, this, of the vocal line at that point. And um, the idea was because I wanted to evoke time, timelessness in this movement. And so the video component is actually kind of a sped up fixed shots of of the uh, Grand Concourse, 
the Grand Central, which is, shows hundreds of people moving through, but it's they all look like ants almost because it's moving so fast. And then that's juxtaposed with this really slow music. And my hope was that it would just encourage the the audience to get a little bit lost in in that. Cool. Have you caught the like Justin Bieber slowed down eight hundred percent, or Jurassic Park theme slowed down eight hundred percent? Yeah, I have seen that. <laughs> I've yeah, I've heard those things. I for my influence for that really comes more from uh thinking about the way medieval composers made some of their things. I just find that fascinating that they would take a popular song of the day, put it in the bass, and then augment it by, you know, four or five times. And that was then the baseline of their piece or their mass or whatever. Yeah, I, me- I remember hearing about that now that you mention it. Wasn't there something about like those popular songs being kind of like not something you would that would generally be okay in a yes in a church yes, setting exactly but exactly that's just like a little right now that's a component secret. it's not not part of my work <laughs> because anything goes today but for them right they had a lot of restriction that's right so that was their way of using those things Huh. Uh, getting getting them snuck in there, yeah. Because you wouldn't. <laughs> the thing is, I mean, only a, the most sophisticated listener would know, and probably that person would only be the composer of everything. So mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of interesting. Well, one other piece that I thought was cool is your assembly lines piece, and that one it struck me like how cool your development section is in that. Mm. How do you approach? Like once you have your initial idea, doing your a development section, that yeah, that piece really just is based on two simple ideas: sort of rising scale. And then as a little triadic falling thing, or no, a triad well, it falls eventually, but it's kind of ascending. I compose in layers, and so I've very often used Sibelius as a sort of um, sequencer, like someone might do when they're writing electronic dance music. Again, going back to this idea of something being fixed, and then I write around it. Um, Maybe that comes to the fact that that was my early; those were my earliest experiences working with music. Was my little four-track tape recorder I had when I was a teenager and then writing a something on the guitar and then playing that back and then trying to figure out another layer to put on top. I mean, I think that's essentially what I'm doing except for it's, you know, I end up getting different results than I did when I was a teenager. Cuz back then I just was trying to write another Nirvana song or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Um so if I'm thinking of the section that you're talking about, um I remember having a layer and thinking like, okay, I'm going to take that ascending scale and I'll start moving it throughout the the group so it's in the strings and then it ends up going into the piano and then I remove one of the hands of the piano so then I'm only getting one part of that ascending scale and not the counterpoint that goes with it. Or and then a new hand comes in, a new layer that's a new counterpoint to it, and you know doing things like that and then the strings end up playing these sort of uh, polymetric uh, pits chord things over that. It's a little bit of just for me, um, either while I'm at the piano or maybe working directly in the sequencer, just going with my gut. While 
I think keeping some element that we've heard before, because for me it's quite important for a piece to, you know, at least that one especially, uh, the the whole point was to work with a kind of minimal amount of material because it was meant to be a sort of just a fanfare type of piece. So you don't want to throw too many things out there in a piece like that. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me about your music festivals that you run. Fast Forward Austin and mm-hmm. Outpost concert yeah. series. Mm-hmm. How do you go about running those? Well... When I lived in Texas, I was doing my doctorate there. I started this festival with uh, two other colleagues, Steve Snowden and Robert Honstein. And we noticed that other cities are, I've seen these sort of festivals popping up. This sort of, the idea comes from maybe Bang on a Can originally, the eight hour marathon kind of event. In my case, it was directly influenced by the Switchboard Music Festival, which is in San Francisco. And I remember flying back to Texas from there feeling very inspired, thinking, oh, I want to do this in Austin too. So I was able to develop this with my colleagues and it just grows each year and you know the budget also grows and there's a lot of fundraising and doing things like that. And it's kind of amazing because the new music world is so, when it comes down to it, it's, it's a small world and word of mouth things do go quickly. So it was even in the second or actually by the second year, we already had people asking to be on the festival and I was quite surprised by that because you know, we just started. I think part of it is that people want to go to Austin. <laughs> they like to. <laughs> they like the idea of visiting. So, I mean, it was in our second year where we had uh, Vicky Chow, the pianist from Bang on a Can, come and play. And so that, of course, think people like her really elevated the festival. So, and then for the Outpost concert series, that's at UC Riverside. Same thing. I mean, after I did a few events, I've just word spread quickly, and people started to ask to be on it. And that, too, I try to grow a little more each year. Mm-hmm. Well, if you could give a composer who's just starting out some advice, what would you say? If you could give one piece of advice about the actual composing and one about the career of composing. Okay. For actual composing, I think it's at first best to just write a lot of music. I don't think it's appropriate yet to, even if you have a large-scale idea um, for a piece that would probably take maybe an entire six months to write or something, I think it's better for younger composers to write a lot of music and hopefully also to hear that music. Because as we all know, it seems one way to us, but as soon as we are listening to it in the presence of other people, we realize what worked and what didn't work and you know it, things become clearer. So I think that's the other thing. And if you can't get a performance, which is, of course, could be quite likely it's not easy to get performances depending where you go to school too then play back your midi file with your friends there because you will get a similar simulation of that experience of hearing it live because you're seeing the reaction of someone else you know and that, you know, I know I still to this day that helps me a lot when I'm in the audience and I see someone shifting around a little. Now, granted, I mean, it doesn't mean that I'm going to change that part, but it made, made me think if I saw enough people shifting around or I felt enough kind of boredness, <laughs> <laughs> lack of focus from the audience at a certain point, then perhaps then I, there's a section that needs to be trimmed or whatever. Something needs to happen. My advice for a career I, that all composers need to wear many different hats and that it's important for composers to develop projects that don't that do not serve themselves directly. 
So I think that could be done in the form of starting a concert series where you're presenting other people's music or a festival or perhaps some other thing like maybe a podcast or you know things that are not serving you directly is very, very important. And it will serve you actually because you'll interact with more people, you'll get to know them. It doesn't mean they're going to commission you, but at least you've started a relationship with them because a lot of people, um, I mean, yes, people drop out, but a lot of people do stay in this for life, and that means you're building connections that will last you your whole entire career. And it's also important because community engagement is a big you know, uh, thing that we talk about all the time. Well, you could talk about it, or you could try to do something about it. And so I think that if enough of us really had, if every city had a little concert series or had a festival or something, then we've built a real network. And that network can be the kind of thing where an artist can plan a tour and really go from place to place and have this really smooth, nice network of different meaningful events to play on. Because we need to help our our performing friends. Um, They are our greatest advocates of our music. So creating an infrastructure for them, I think, is the least we can try to do. So that would be my advice with that. I think that it's best, your career will happen uh, but it won't happen if you're just writing your music and sending it off and things like that. You need to. I mean, of course, some of that is important. You know, competitions, uh, be damned. You know, we need to do them sometimes. But I think that developing a project that serves a larger purpose outside of your own music is the most important thing. That is great advice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, along the lines of commissions, you had mentioned uh, consortium commissions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How how does that work exactly, and how do you get connected with a consortium? Well, some people, it's funny, it's a contentious issue. Some performers like the idea, and some really don't. Some performers want to commission a piece, and they want to be the only ones who are going to play it. And I can understand that. I think where it works to everybody's advantage is that consortium, once it's built, meaning that let's say it's a consortium, let's say the commission fee is $1,000 and then the consortium has 10 people in it. Well, that means every person is only paying $100. So what may have been really hard for someone to raise 1000 on their own, now they're only contributing 100 which would probably be a lot easier, I would imagine. And then the way it could work is a, the person who put whose idea it was to start the commission is the project coordinator, and they get maybe the first premiere right of the work. And then after that, the people in the consortium get exclusive right to perform it for whatever the terms are. Maybe it's a year, probably not two years. Maybe it could be two years. And then at that time, the just piece becomes available. So how it works is just when the commissioner approaches the composer, the composer may suggest that you know to see if they're interested in doing that. I think it works too because it means maybe more performances for the composer. It could, or in my case, you know, not exactly what you would <laughs> think. It just depends on what it is, and that's actually common. I've heard that story many times that some people in the in the consortium just don't end up playing the piece. On the other hand, at least I'm hoping that it wasn't then for them a big uh, financial commitment or a financial loss in that sense. I mean, it just means also that they were part of something that could be in the end. Historically important. Who knows? What if the work goes on to be really in the canon? Then you could say, "Well, I commissioned that piece." I don't know. That's yeah. not going to happen to any of my pieces anytime <laughs> soon. But you know, just thinking of other composers, maybe. Uh, so it's a really. I like the model. I think that as long as the commissioner, the lead commissioner, is comfortable with it, then I think it's a quite a quite a good way to go. And so I've done not too many of these things, but a few. The the largest one I was ever in was for a sax duo, and that they ended up having I think twenty two members of the consortium. 
And so it's actually, that's so many people that I'm not even sure how many have played it because not all of them realize that it's the right thing to do is to contact the composer to tell them that you're playing their piece. Because in my case, that I mean, not only for royalties is that a nice thing to know, but actually in my, on my tenure track trajectory that I hope to maintain at UC Riverside, performances are an important creative act in in a sense and they count as publications that in my tenure file so for me it's very important to know those things yeah. any performers listening should make sure you tell the composer and i have there's so many performers that are so good about that and they do that all the time and they even send the program that's even better you know? yeah that's great it's good to have that too yeah i've started putting my email at the bottom of my scores now and yeah like, that's smart please stay in touch <laughs> Yeah, I should do that. That's a good idea. I just have a tradition on the podcast of having a question chain going. And Mm -hmm. so the last person who was on asked a question for you. He was wondering, how do you decide when to bring in a certain instrument or take out a certain instrument? For me, the question always is, is you got to know who is on the bass, who's going to be playing the bass, the role of a bass in your ensemble. So if you're writing a piece for four flutes, then, you know, fine, maybe there isn't a bass. But if you're writing a mixed chamber group, then, okay, maybe I have double bass. But if I only have double bass and the rest of it are all treble instruments, that might be a problem in the end for me, because then I'm really only have this one timbre as a bass. So I might then want to throw in a bassoon, so at least I can have somebody also down there. And then maybe I also want to throw a cello in. So that's how I build it from there, I think. I think about which role they'll play. And not to say that I mean that, that they play only traditional roles the entire time. It's certainly not true. But it's helpful to start there for me. And to think, I start with the bass. Who's going to play bass? And then from there, it sort of informs the other decisions. It's easy to figure out who's going to be the treble. There's so many instruments for that to choose. But we don't have that many to choose for the bass. Yeah. Cool. And then uh, just if you have a a question for my next guest, a random composer who will be on this podcast. Okay. I would ask, if you did an analysis of your work, or at least a few of your works, do you see a pattern in where the climax occurs in those works? Hmm. Well, thanks, Ian, for being on the show here. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Ian Dickey. Check out all his music at iandickey.com. That's spelled I-A-N-D-I-C-K-E. Ian went above and beyond in the challenge to make an intro theme for this episode. He actually made three of them. Right now you're hearing another one he made, and I'll play you a snippet of the third one he made. Our question of the week is, what's your favorite piece of music you've written, and why? And does it coincide with what other people think is your best piece of music? Share your thoughts and a link to your music if you want at forum.composerquest.com. Now, it's time for another... (laughs) 
I stayed up until 5.30 a.m. this morning working on some video game music for a new game my friend Will was working on at Untied Games. We're aiming to finish a demo of it for a contest put on by Intel. The game's codenamed Robo because you're a little helicopter robot flying around and solving puzzles. It's a pixel art game, so I wanted to create a nostalgic soundtrack to go along with it. I had heard good things about Plogue Chip Sounds, which is a collection of authentic sounds from old systems like NES and Game Boy, so I finally bit the bullet and bought them. So far, it's been really fun, although there's a little bit of a learning curve, at least in using it with Ableton Live. Anyways, for this soundtrack, I challenged myself to just use these retro chip sounds. First, though, I started with a basic chord idea on piano. It ended up sounding like this with chip sounds. I used a trick that minimalist composers like Philip Glass often use. You can change keys very easily if you just slide one or two notes of the chord to nearby notes. The chord changes will sound fairly smooth no matter what accidentals you use, as long as the new notes are like a step or a half step away, and you have at least one note staying the same throughout the chord change. If you're having trouble thinking of a good melody, sometimes it's easiest to just lay down a bunch of chords like this, and a melody will eventually emerge. Here's the first melody that came to me. Along with that melody, I was hearing this bass line. into detail about how I made these sounds, but basically it was just me fiddling around with different presets and effects. The main effects that give these sounds extra character are their echo and modulation, which acts kind of like vibrato. For drums, I found a couple Plogue Chip Sounds presets that automatically create a beat when you hold down a single note. Pretty nice. I made two different drum tracks and panned them left and right. Last, I added a couple other plinky layers. So now I'm going to give you a little test. I'm going to play the beginning of this track, and then an alternate version, and I want you to try and figure out what the difference is. Here's the alternate version.
Okay, think you got it? The difference is in the melody and the bass line. In the real version, the melody and the bass are syncopated in some parts, meaning they play on the offbeats, and especially on the end of beat four. In the alternate mix, I pushed the notes back half a beat so that they'd fall exactly on beat one. Do you feel the momentum kind of die when everything's on beat one? I didn't really think about the melody and bass being syncopated as I was recording them, but I realized that they make the whole track a lot more interesting that way. They essentially make the chords change half a beat earlier than you'd expect. It's something to think about if you have a chord progression that feels kind of stagnant. You might try pushing some of the chords ahead half a beat to add more rhythmic interest. I came up with a B section and a C section for this track pretty quickly, and I'm not sure how well they work. If anything, the B section is probably a little too busy, and the C section is probably a little too sparse, at least as background music. But it all loops back to the beginning decently, at least. Before I play the full track, I want to mention that you can find all these music production lessons at composerquest.com cmpl, or you can search for Charlie's Music Production Lessons on your podcast app of choice. Thanks for listening, and here's my track, tentatively titled Heli Robo C.